Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 583 for the 11th of March, 2018. This week, the open source photo editing application GIMP might be a replacement for Photoshop, but I suspect that most Photoshop users who try to migrate will be less than delighted with the results. In short circuits, last month's largest ever distributed denial of service attack has been followed this month by one that's even larger. The underlying problem is massive. IBM and Airbus have cooperated to build a basketball-sized robot that will soon fly to the International Space Station. In spare parts, only on the website, a study suggests that an artificial intelligence system does a better job than lawyers do in reviewing some kinds of contracts. Equifax says that it will be notifying another 2.4 million U.S. consumers that last year's data breach exposed some of their information. If you have a clever idea, you might want to enter it in the annual Create the Future contest. Top prize, $20,000. Occasionally, I hear from people who are looking for an alternative to Adobe's photography applications, Lightroom, Adobe Camera Raw, Bridge, and Photoshop. The conversation usually comes around to GIMP, a free and open source image editor. It's been around for a long time, and it can be enhanced with plugins. But is it a viable alternative? The most basic observation is pretty obvious. GIMP is not Photoshop. But neither are applications such as On One Photo Raw and Alien Skin Exposure X2. Most of the applications that compete with Adobe are actually competing with Lightroom, not Photoshop. Lightroom, On One Photo Raw, and Alien Skin Exposure X2 are intended for macro editing, changing overall exposure, color, sharpness, and such. They have limited abilities to apply modifications locally and only Photoshop offers pixel-level modifications. These applications are outstanding workflow managers in that they import and organize images. In many cases, they're all that's needed. Professional photographers generally cull images in one of these applications, make the necessary corrections there, and sometimes skip Photoshop entirely. But these are not the right applications for those who need pixel-level editing functions or those who want to create graphics for use on the web. For those kinds of tasks, Photoshop excels. So who needs GIMP? Well, there are several classes of users. First is those who prefer open-source software. Second would be those who refuse to pay for software. Third, those who don't like the rental system that Adobe has adopted. Some of those who use Photoshop CS6, the last version to be provided with a perpetual license, wonder if GIMP will be sufficient when some future version of Windows or Mac OS will no longer support Photoshop CS6. Let's take a little side trip here and consider just how much is too much. I hear people say, I'm only a hobbyist, so Lightroom and Photoshop are too expensive. That puzzles me. 
One option for those who don't like rental software or think that $10 a month is too expensive would be to just switch back to film. No more software. Problem solved. Or is it? Let's run the numbers. Amazon sells 10 rolls of 24 exposure Kodak GC135 Max 400 color print film for $29.99. That's about $3 a roll, so about 12.5 cents per shot. Now, to keep costs low, you'll want to choose a discount store to develop the film. After all, you're only a hobbyist. The cost might be as low as $5 per roll, but that's for developing and scanning, no prints. Because you're avoiding Lightroom and Photoshop, you can't use those scanned images. Instead, you'll need prints. The cost of developing and printing a 24 exposure roll will be, oh, say at least $12, that's 50 cents per image, and you won't be able to share the images with friends unless you buy extra copies. So your cost here is 62 and a half cents every time you click the shutter. Because you're only a hobbyist, let's assume that you use just one roll of film per month, 24 pictures. So that's $15 a month or $180 a year. Now, Adobe charges $10 a month for Lightroom, Adobe Camera Raw, Bridge, and Photoshop. This eliminates the need to buy film and pay for processing. So I categorically reject the too expensive argument. If you don't like renting software, or you simply prefer open source software, that's another issue. And GIMP might be right for you. GIMP is the acronym for the GNU Image Manipulation Program. It's a longtime favorite of those who prefer free open source programs. There's a lot to like. It is a powerful application. It's free. But it also has a reputation for being slow, buggy, and confusing. Additionally, it doesn't have most of the high-end features that Photoshop offers. Even so, the slow and buggy reputation is less deserved these days than it used to be, so maybe it's the right choice for some users. Unlike Adobe products, GIMP runs on Windows, Mac OS, and Linux computers, while Adobe's programs are limited to Windows and Mac OS systems. So I decided to take another look at GIMP. I've looked at it several times over the years. Two things become immediately apparent the first time a user opens GIMP. First, the application is highly visible because it's white, and it's in three pieces that are spread around the screen. Second, by default, GIMP cannot open raw image files. Both of these are significant. Adobe's default interface is medium gray. That's a good compromise between being visible without detracting from the images you're editing. The user can make the interface brighter or darker to suit individual preferences. But the more disturbing issue is that tools are in a separate panel on the left, layers and brushes are in a separate panel on the right, Open images are in a separate panel in the middle, and the menu remains in yet another panel. I have never, ever liked that approach. So the first thing most users who have Photoshop experience will want to do involves changing the interface with tweaks developed by Martin Owens, known as Dr. Mo. Many years ago, GIMP Shop was an effort to create a Photoshop-like version of GIMP, but there's been no development since 2006. It's still available for download, but because it hasn't been updated for nearly 12 years, I think using Dr. Moe's GIMP tweaks is a better option. So here's how. Start by closing GIMP if it's running, 
and download the tweaks from the DeviantArt website. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website where you can download it. Don't do anything with the file yet. Just download it. Next, open a Windows Explorer window and type user profile with percent signs on either side. And you'll see a folder called GIMP28 in the user profile folder. Rename that folder. A good choice might be GIMP28 original. Then extract the contents of the Dr. Mo zip file to the user profile directory. You can do that by copying the zip file to that directory and then extracting the contents right there, or by performing the extraction in the directory where you store the downloaded file and then copying the GIMP 2.8 directory to the appropriate location. So you'll now have two directories, GIMP 2.8 and GIMP 2.8 original. The next time you open GIMP, it will look a lot more like the Photoshop CS6 you're familiar with. The next problem you need to address, though, is GIMP's inability to work with RAW files. At least you need to do that if you shoot RAW files instead of JPEGs. Several factors will determine whether you choose RAW or JPEG. That's a topic I covered in January. If you'd like to go back and take a look at it, there's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website to the January program. So assuming you do shoot RAW images at least some of the time, you'll need to find a way to make them accessible to GIMP. Note my use of the word there, accessible. GIMP cannot open RAW files. I've already said that. But then neither can Photoshop or Lightroom. Photoshop uses Adobe Camera Raw to process RAW files. They can then be saved in PSD or TIFF format once you've edited them. Lightroom uses Adobe Camera Raw technology in the background to display the image you'll modify and then writes modification information to a catalog file. No application messes with the RAW files themselves. GIMP users will need the equivalent of Adobe Camera Raw. One option is called Unidentified Flying Raw, which can read raw images from many digital cameras. It can be used as a standalone application or as a GIMP plugin, but I can't recommend it. I did try it. After installing UFRAW, I attempted to open the application in standalone mode, but it failed. Several dynamic link library files were missing. The most promising recommendation for correcting the error involved copying some of the DLL files from the GIMP directory to the UFRAW directory. But even after doing that, UFRAW refused to open. It no longer reported problems with DLL files. It just told me it couldn't open no real explanation. Now there's undoubtedly a way to make this work. I mean, after all, a lot of people are using it. But the path to success seemed needlessly difficult. An hour and a half was more time than I wanted to spend on it. An easier solution might involve using the photo application that came with your camera. Any camera that's capable of producing a raw image should come with a disk that includes a program capable of converting a raw image to a TIFF or a JPEG. For editing, you should use the TIFF conversion instead of the JPEG conversion because the TIFF format is lossless and the JPEG format is not. Then once you've edited the TIFF, you can export it as a JPEG for sharing, if you wish. In addition to applications from the camera manufacturer, several other freeware applications can open RAW files and save them as TIFFs. One that seemed promising was Adobe's free digital negative converter. The DNG format was created by Adobe as a standard format that camera manufacturers or software publishers can use without charge. GIMP is actually supposed to be able to open DNG files, but when I tried, it opened only the tiny embedded thumbnail. 
Now that's GIMP's problem, not Adobe's. Possibly DNG files need another add-in that I didn't have and didn't feel like looking for. And before giving up entirely on plugins for GIMP, I tried one more, PhotoFlow. Even though it was able to open in standalone mode, I encountered the same kinds of problems running it that I had with UF RAW. So that leaves only the camera manufacturer's conversion option. If at this point, maybe you're beginning to wonder whether saving $10 a month is worth the fuss, well, I certainly was. I decided to work with a TIFF image for testing and demonstration, but even then there were problems. When converted from RAW, most TIFFs will be considerably larger than the RAW file. My sample image grew from a 30 megabyte RAW file to a 106 megabyte TIFF. That could certainly have an effect on how much storage space you need on your computer. Additionally, the DNG or RAW file will probably have 16-bit bit depth. GIMP can handle only 8-bit files. Converting down to 8-bits will reduce the quality of the image. GIMP will also suggest converting from whichever color space your camera uses, and that's probably Adobe RGB, to the considerably less capable sRGB color space. You can skip that and retain the larger and better Adobe RGB color space, though. In fact, you can completely turn off the message about that. Without going too far afield at this point, I should probably say a little bit about the sRGB format. Any file you output from Lightroom, Photoshop, or GIMP should be converted to sRGB if you plan to share it on the internet, but only at output time. And the output file should continue to use the Adobe RGB color space if you plan to have it printed. For 10 years or more, probably more, I've tried to develop a working relationship with GIMP. I've never succeeded. I can think of exactly one situation in which photographers might prefer GIMP. That's when they have only a Linux computer. Otherwise, there are applications for Mac OS and Windows systems that are much easier to use. Or maybe there is one other situation in which GIMP would be the right choice. It would be the right choice for those who simply detest Adobe and are willing to put up with GIMP's shortcomings. So if you're a photographer, either amateur or pro, Adobe Lightroom and Photoshop seem to be a better choice than GIMP, which doesn't include an image organizer. When you return from a vacation with 1,000 pictures, sorting through them all is going to be difficult. If you take only a few pictures per year, then maybe GIMP is all you need. Also, if you shoot exclusively in JPEG format, GIMP can handle those kinds of files without a problem. There's doubtless an open source image organizer that would be compatible with GIMP, so that might not be a problem long term, but you'd still have to find it, download it, and install it. Your camera's software probably has a workable image organizer, and the Gecko and Fly website no, I don't know why they call it that. The Gecko and Fly website lists several open source choices. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. So how does GIMP actually work? Well, many of the standard Photoshop tools are available in GIMP. And by that, I mean it more or less replicates Photoshop from half a dozen years ago. Adobe's new rapid release schedule means that new features are added more or less continuously, and once you've found a new feature that you're particularly fond of, it's difficult to go back. One of the most significant recent additions makes selecting and masking the main subject of an image easy. This is a feature that's mainly intended for professionals and advanced amateurs. 
and it can be a significant time saver. Plugins are available to add some of the missing features. Some of the content-aware capabilities, for example, can be added to GIMP with the right plugin. Still, the user needs to know that the plugin exists, seek it out, and install it. And as we've seen, installing plugins isn't always as quick and easy as we'd hope. The clone tool is among some of the basic features that work quite well in GIMP. The keystrokes for activating and using the tool differ, but the functionality is the same. In the example you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website, I wanted to remove a little twig that was in front of a lion. So I added a new transparent layer above the base image, cloned information from the base image to the image on top. Cloning to a separate layer makes it possible to erase the patched area and try again if your first effort or your second or third or 400th isn't exactly what you want. Likewise, GIMP's tools for modifying exposure, contrast, color balance, and other basics are a match for Photoshop's. When you're ready to save the image, whether you started with a JPEG or a TIFF, GIMP will save the file in its proprietary format with an XCF extension. Saving changes to either the 106 megabyte TIFF or the 13 megabyte JPEG created a new 54 megabyte XCF file. So if you start with a 30 megabyte raw image, you'll still have that file along with a 100 megabyte TIFF and a 50 megabyte XCF, nearly 200 megabytes for every image you modify. Fortunately, disk space is cheap these days. Also, fortunately, there is a very good online source for information about how to use GIMP. For those who want to give it a try, there is a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. So the bottom line for GIMP is three cats. Despite significant shortcomings, GIMP is usable. There's a big difference between usable and easy to use, though. Few people would argue that either Lightroom or Photoshop is easy to use, particularly for those who are new to either application, but learning resources abound for Adobe's applications. Learning resources for GIMP are far more sparse, but a determined user will be able to make it work. Overall, though, it seems to me that photographers should just stick with Adobe's $10 a month photography plan. You'll find additional details about GIMP on the GIMP website, and there's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. In short circuits, at the end of February, the software development hosting website GitHub was hit by a massive distributed denial-of-service attack. Massive, as in, nobody has ever seen an attack this large before. That's not a very good sign for the future. The attack peaked at more than one and one-third terabits per second, and was so large that it caused problems elsewhere. Incredibly, though, the attack put GitHub offline for less than 10 minutes. GitHub is used to distribute software, but it's also a repository for version-controlled software development. The company was quick to point out that at no point was the confidentiality or integrity of users' data at risk. The company provided a detailed summary of what happened and how they hope to avoid having it happen again. The attack worked by abusing what are called memcached instances that are inadvertently accessible on the public Internet with UDP support enabled. Memcached is a general-purpose distributed memory caching system. It's commonly used to accelerate database-driven websites by caching data and objects in RAM to reduce the number of times that external data sources have to be read. 
GitHub says that spoofing of IP addresses allows memcached responses to be targeted against another address, like ones used to serve github.com, and then send more data toward the target than needs to be sent by the unspoofed source. And they say the vulnerability via misconfiguration is unique because of its amplification factor of up to 51,000. That means that every single byte of data sent by the attacker turns into 51 kilobytes being sent to the target. The report from GitHub says, At 17.21 UTC, our network monitoring system detected an anomaly in the ratio of ingress to egress traffic and notified the on-call engineer and others in our chat system. The report, which I have a link to on the TechBiter Worldwide website, describes the procedures GitHub's network engineers use to reduce and then eliminate the attack. Looking to the future, GitHub says making GitHub's edge infrastructure more resilient to current and future conditions of the Internet and less dependent on human involvement requires better automated intervention. We are investigating the use of our monitoring infrastructure, the report says, to automate enabling DDoS mitigation providers and will continue to measure our response times to incidents like this with the goal of reducing the mean time to recovery. So maybe that's a lot of technical mumbo-jumbo, but regardless of what's planned for the future, GitHub network engineers performed flawlessly in identifying the problem and reducing its effects within four minutes, and then eliminating the issue four minutes after that. A second event was detected about half an hour later. It caused no service disruptions. An even larger attack was detected this week by NetScout's Arbor Security Group. This one hit a peak of 1.7 terabits. Now, to put that in perspective, let's consider the math. There are 8 bits in a byte, so 1 terabit is about 125 gigabytes. Or to break that down further, 128,000 megabytes. 1 terabit of inbound data would be roughly the equivalent of slamming 4,267 30 megabyte photos at the site every second. The 1.7 terabit attack would equate to more than 8,500 30 megabyte digital photo files per second. That is a nearly unimaginable amount of data. And here's the bad news. An estimated 100,000 systems are online and using improperly configured memcached installations. If you're a network engineer, pleasant dreams. There's been quite a lot of talk recently about robots in our homes, but some stories about robots are a little far out, about 250 miles out, in fact, on the International Space Station. IBM and Airbus have created the Crew Interactive Mobile Companion. They shorten that to C-I-M-O-N, presumably pronounced like Simon. The floating robot will be able to assist astronauts as they work in space. It weighs about 11 pounds on Earth and is about the size of a basketball, according to Airbus. The robot runs a modified version of IBM's Watson and is intended to display information about procedures and offer solutions to problems. As an artificial intelligence device, Simon does have the ability to learn. Airbus says the gadget will help crew members as they follow checklists 
and will serve as an early warning system when it notices technical problems. Airbus head of microgravity payloads Manfred Jaumann says Simon was made from parts created by a 3D printer. It's characterized as being similar to Siri and Alexa because it can recognize speech and can interact with the astronauts. So if you have a little less than a minute to spare, check out a short YouTube video. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. It's a parody of what might happen had Siri been a star in 2001, a space odyssey. Simon will travel with astronaut Alexander Gerst and will be on the space station from June through October. The device will be tested in crystal experiments, the ability to solve a Rubik's Cube. Why couldn't they do that on the ground? And a flying camera during a complex medical experiment. Airbus and IBM say the technology has a promising future on Earth, too. Earth is probably the only place that spare parts has a future, or a past. That's the only place you'll find it. This week, a study suggests that an artificial intelligence system does a better job than lawyers do in reviewing some kinds of contracts. Equifax says it will be notifying another 2.4 million U.S. consumers that last year's data breach exposed some of their information. And if you have a clever idea, you might want to enter it in the annual Create the Future contest. Top prize, $20,000. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.